Shall we kick off? My name's Jonathan Brecken. I'm the director of the Alliance for Useful Evidence here at Nesta. Uh, but our focus tonight is on a particular book, Social Butterflies, Reclaiming the Positive Power of Social Networks. Uh, and you can, by the way, buy the book outside at the end, I believe. Um, and you also get wine and nibbles at the end. Uh, to, to ease that process. And I believe you'll be doing book signing. Is that right? You're not rushing off? Yeah. Yeah, good. If there's wine. So. If there's wine. There is wine. Um, but we go, we've got half an hour of uh, conversation about this uh, book, and then we're going to open up to the audience. And, and just to warn you, we are filming this, but don't worry, you'll all be anonymized. You can ask whatever you want. Uh, it'll be mostly us who'll be filmed. You won't be in that. So you can see that afterwards online. Nice. Um, there'll only be a few questions at the end, but do feel free to nobble them and answer, uh, get them to answer the questions you really wanted to ask. But I, I, do, uh, I will try and encourage you to, to contribute to the conversation as we go through. But just to, to introduce the book, it's, um, it's an extraordinarily optimistic book in a time where all the talk of social network seems very negative. Uh, it's easy to feel bleak about online networks, whether it's Cambridge Analytica, Facebook self-segregation, fake news, uh, general exacerbation of us and them. And the question is, how do we get beyond that us and them? How can we become kinder online how can we make the best of the social networks we're already part of? And how can we bring what you call in your book the, the beauty and strength of the social and how we can make the world a better place? So, Michael, I'm going to start with you. How do we go about making the world a better place, particularly using things such as social norms and so forth? Sure. So I think... It's very easy for us to focus on if we read the news or watch television or really are alive at all uh, on the negative aspects of what we see, the very salient negative things. Um, and so what one of the things that's been shown to be quite successful in, in a lot of the research that we talk about in the book is just showing people that actually most people are doing the right thing most of the time. Um, and when we see that most of the people are doing the right thing most of the time, we feel this desire to conform to that, uh, and we, we proceed to do so. We, we conform, we, we, we toe the line of, being, of doing a positive thing. Um, so there are a lot more sophisticated things we can do, but sort of the most basic, I think, really, is just drawing attention to the fact that actually hardly anybody really gets stabbed or hardly anybody really commits crime. And if we can draw attention to those positive things, so the, the absence of negativity in a lot of our lives, then we become, I think, inspired in a very small, low-key way to just be slightly, slightly more decent people. But how do we practically go about doing those positive stories? The, the media, last time I looked, uh, still loves its negativity and tittle-tattle. Uh, how do you get those positive messages out uh, in a realistic way? So I think there's two things. There's sort of what we can do as organizations. So if we're running a charity or if we're working in, in comms at all or if we're in government, then what we can do is we can change the way we communicate with people about what's going on instead of focusing on, you know, have this 
huge teacher shortage. We can talk about how many people still are in teaching, how many people do love teaching, which you know most people who are teachers will purport to do that. Um, so we can we can put that out through communications. We can also, as individuals, we can take a bit of a personal stand. So you know the media, by and large, they're trying to sell us what we're kind of looking for. Um, so you know they know that tittle tattle, as you say, it's, it sells papers, it, it draws in clicks and eyeballs. If we make a resolution of ourselves, you know, here today to say, actually, I am going to look around me and I'm going to every time I see an argument in a pub and think the world is a violent place, I'm going to actually count how many tables there are in this pub at which nobody is arguing, or the number of times that I've been to a pub and nobody argues. When I think all civil servants are wankers, I'm going to look actually. Only a very small, maybe 20, 30% of them. <laughs> it's quite large. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I was in cabinet office. I may be drawing from a disproportionately wankerish pool. But <laughs> <laughs> apologies to colleagues from the civil service. Uh, so, yeah, so we can take it upon ourselves to actually look for the mass yeah. of good rather than trying to be you know, blinded by the sort of the spotlights of, of evil. Yeah, that's very good. Susanna, what... What motivated you to write the book, particularly with Michael as well? But what was what was the inspiration by, behind coming up with those very practical tips as well? Yeah. Kind of uh, so I think you know the first thing to say is that the book isn't naive. So the book comes from a position of recognizing that if you're looking around the world at the moment, you kind of go, you know, there is a lot of things to not be very happy about. Uh, but there is nothing I find more frustrating than someone who just tells me about problems and doesn't tell me anything I can do about it or anything I can be hopeful about or anything that I can try and change myself or changes that I can look for. So although, so I think that was, that was part of why we wanted to write the book and why I wanted to write the book. Also, I guess we've both done a lot of work in this and what we see is really positive. We see people who want to belong, who want to help others, who want to do good things. And, and we see evidence that that's, that sort of uh, those instincts can be fostered and supported, and that social networks can be better and stronger. Uh, so I guess we wanted to we wanted to bring that out as well. Mm -hmm. can, I, can I ask you, ask you though, when when social norms are negative, mm -hmm. when you actually find out that say most people aren't using energy saving devices or they're mm -hmm. not paying their taxes on time, if you want to share that social norm, that could be mm. that actually the book says it's you know it could really backfire mm. and make things worse because people go oh well most people aren't doing it why should I bother? <laughs> what do you do with those negative social norms? You know yeah. if they're yeah. without sort of lying. I think there's so there's a really interesting issue here, which is that people who create these kinds of campaigns or information that sort of thing think that people will react the way they react, so because mm. they care a lot about it. And they think, I'm outraged by this. Other people will be outraged as well. So in a couple of examples we use in the book, one of which is, uh, so it, shelters find it really hard to get black cats adopted. And there's, you know, like traditionally they're bad luck. They're not very photogenic. You can sort of, you know, there's a variety of reasons why that might be. But they'll put campaigns out that they're like, nobody adopts black cats. Isn't this terrible? Join us and adopt a black cat. And what they fail to realize is that most people go, look at that. They don't put that much energy in it. Maybe they don't care as much as the shelter does. And so their reaction is, oh, well, there's probably a good reason why people aren't adopting black cats. Maybe I'll get a, you know, a different cat. And so you kind of you put that message out into the world by accident. Another example is one from uh, our work where there's, a, and you guys may have seen something like this, there's a furious um, laminated piece of paper next to the uh, sink with pictures of people's bad behavior around like not washing their dishes or that sort of thing. And I tell you what, so I mean, I think I don't, I don't know that those ever work, but 
But there is something quite funny about seeing photos of other people failing to wash their dishes that makes you go, well, everyone else is doing it, so I'll do it as well. And people <laughs> kind of fail to, because they care about it, it makes them so furious. Um, they've sort of failed to realize that, that this is actually something that most people are not as furious about as they are and therefore might react differently. And I think there's kind of that interesting, I think it's an interesting intellectual exercise for anyone who's producing anything that's aiming to influence someone else is think about how someone who doesn't care about this as much as you might respond to it. Uh, but to answer your question directly, there is some, the interesting research on that is that people, it seems people will generally adjust to the norm. So if they're currently doing better than the norm, then they're like, okay, well, I can take my foot off the gas a bit, you know, whatever it is. Uh, I can study a bit less hard or I can wash my dishes a bit less often or, you know, whatever it might be. And so if people are acting better than the norm, you probably just want to tell them you're doing great, keep doing what you're doing, which obviously isn't a lie because they are. <laughs> but you probably don't want to tell them you're better than the norm. You should just tell them you're doing really well, you're doing exactly what you should be doing. We really appreciate it. Whereas if people are below the norm, often will sort of worse than the norm after giving them that information will cause them to correct up towards the norm. So people are under the norm, you kind of want you want to give them more information about that and how they where how far away they are from it than if they're above the norm where you just want to be like, Great job. Good job doing your dishes. <laughs> well done adopting those black cats. <laughs> and Mike, Michael, do you have any favorite nudges? I mean you were chief scientist of the behavioral insights team, but specifically nudges that would help to get us to be better social beings as well and, and build, get the best out of our social networks? Uh, so, gosh, uh, yeah, I think there are, are a few. So the study that um, Susanna was talking about, I think Jerome was talking about, um, was one where we got people in uh, workplaces to exercise a bit more um, by pointing out to them, you know, you, you know you're... Uh, the other the other team, so the Alliance for Useful Evidence and Nesta are there are a few hundred steps ahead of you. If you just go a little bit faster, step a little bit more, actually the speed doesn't matter. Uh, just do a few more steps, then you can you can beat them. That was a that was really effective at getting people to take more steps. And as Susanna said, it was really particularly effective on people who were basically sedentary um, to begin with. So the biggest effects is where we saw it uh, taking the most impact. Um, there's also uh, the social support stuff uh, later in the book where we talk about uh, young people in typically, well, I think yeah, in, in further education colleges, many of whom will have uh, returned to education uh, later in life perhaps or they've uh, not passed their GCSEs at the first time of asking and they're, being, and they're retaking. And so there's sort of, it's very easy for us to conceptualize people like that as having low social capital. So you know, their parents, their extended family don't really care about their learning and that's why they don't, get, they don't engage with their homework and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. However, you know, so when I was at school, my parents went to parents' evening every, every year, I guess it is, um, and they were always there, but the parents of some of my colleagues and my friends uh, weren't there. You know, very easy to say, well, they don't really care about their I don't really care about their kids learning. However, when I was in the football team, if you can imagine me being in the football team, uh, the, I was a lot younger, and I must be said thinner then, um, then my parents really didn't care that much about that. So they would come to pick me up at the end, but they weren't there for the whole game. Whereas these other parents were there for the whole game, and they were there for every single game. So not that they didn't care about their kids or they didn't care about their outcome, hardly anybody doesn't care about their kids. It's that they perhaps didn't have the best experience of education themselves, or they don't know how to support their, their mm. children in their learning. So one of the studies we did, um, which was led by our colleague B.B. Groot, um, was, to give, was to get young people to nominate a study supporter. So somebody in their lives who cares about them and who cares about their learning. They don't have to be an expert on the subject matter. And we just sent them text messages throughout the year saying, you can talk, why don't you talk to Jonathan about his maths? He's, you know, he's struggling. Sorry, Jonathan. I do. Um, yeah. He's got, an, he's got an exam coming out, or he's just uh, studied nonlinear curves. 
reserves. Why don't you talk to him about that? And here's a link to some material that could help you to sort of know what questions to ask. Um, and that really allows a, allows a parent uh, to, or indeed somebody else in the child's life, uh, to have a conversation that's a bit more than uh, with mm. their teenage uh, child or teenage relative. Um, but and it really increases grades by, I think, about 20%. So the 20% increase the likelihood of them passing their, those GCSEs just by sparking those conversations and getting a social network, social capital that already exists and diverting it towards a perhaps more productive use. Mm -hmm. That said, maybe if my parents had come to my football matches, I'd be less overweight. Well, <laughs> lots, of, uh, lots of challenges. But that, that's a great example of where you use a ready-made social network that's already loving and caring to get the best out of them, whether it's homework. Have you got examples of where you know, the different social networks are a bit mm -hmm. us and them, and you're not talking to, a, to a, between each other, that you can actually help build those bridges? Susanna, I don't know if you have some examples where, actually it's a lot harder because they ain't talking at all. This yeah. is a positive one. Can so you get them to talk? I, I can sort of, I can start you off on that and then Michael can pick up on the bridging stuff. But uh, there's a, so my favourite trial that we run that we talk about in the book is one that we ran at King's College London, which actually goes back to norms and it goes back to a concept called pluralistic ignorance, which is basically if you're, if you're thinking something and no one else is saying it, you think you're the only person who thinks it, which, in, which might mean that you're actually on the wrong side, like everybody else is thinking the same thing and you just don't realise it. And so we did a trial, we were looking at basically how you help first year students integrate into Kings and, you know, sort of feel like they belong and that sort of thing. And we, we wrote to them, we emailed them and then we texted them just before their Christmas break. And we said, basically, we sent them an email that said, lots of Kings first years find adapting to university study takes time. So basically, if you're feeling this, you're not the only one, actually, you're part of the norm. Uh, and it's, it's kind of, you know, like a, a validating norm. This isn't, you're not struggling alone. And we found that that message compared to not contacting them more than doubled the rate of low-income students who were signing up to a study support module, so who were reaching out for help, uh, which is the sort of positive side of advising someone of a norm that they don't realise they're part of, is actually that's one way that you can open up uh, a group, of, you know, sort of open up a group to people who don't, who didn't really feel like they were belonging in it. Uh, on the social bridging side, though, I will hand over to Michael. Sure, thank you. Uh, <laughs> So I, I do explain what social bridges mean because people might have had a social capital. Social bridges are sort of quite a new, well, not new, but certainly not well-known term. Yeah, so they're like regular bridges, uh, but social. But social, exactly. <laughs> so also social not good to jump off. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so if you, lots of people are in a situation. So we talked. I talked a little bit before about a situation where somebody inside your network can help you out. Um, there are a lot of situations, however, where somebody in your network perhaps can't help you out because there's nobody in your network with experience on the other side of uh, a divide, a chasm, if you will. Um, so you might think about, uh, so one of the pieces of work we did was with the National Citizen Service, which is a program which young people can go on for four weeks in the summer. It was one of the big uh, tent poles of the uh, Cameroon government, uh, the coalition, um, and Rory Stewart was gonna make it mandatory for everyone, so that hasn't happened. Um, and probably never will. Uh, we, may, we, may have, we, we may have another election sometime in the next couple of months, so you, know, you never know. Um, and so 
they have a disproportionate rate of young people from lower income families um, and from ethnic minorities not turning up to the program. So they sign up and they don't turn up. And part of that is because it's four weeks away from home without their parents. They may never have been away from home for that long. And there's a bit of a perception that quite like the prime minister whose idea it was, the people who do go on it are drawn from a particular strata of society, i.e. A little, just a little bit posh. Um, and that sort of it's not really for people, not really for people like me. Um, so the idea of a social bridge is to say, well, let's find somebody who is sort of a bit like you who might be going on it, um, and let's buddy you up with them and get you to talk to them before you go. So four weeks before the program, we're going to say, Jonathan and Susanna, you guys are now buddies. Uh, talk about what you're looking forward to on the program, and you know we've created a safe online platform for you to talk on where we're monitoring. We're not watching everything word you say. We're making sure you're being nice to each other um, because unlike Facebook, we care about what gets said over our platform. Um, so we do that, and then we see what happens. So at the end of sort of four weeks of you guys chatting, then you know, the likelihood of you not turning up is reduced by about a third for all participants. So what is really interesting, though, is that as my prior, my belief prior to beginning this study was that it was going to be best if you buddied up people who were the same. So you and me, sort of white English guys, um, we would make the best. Well, we make good buddies because we're so similar. Um, whereas, actually, it turns out if you buddy somebody, somebody completely unlike them, so somebody from a different social background, somebody from a different ethnicity, that's where the biggest impacts are found, and much, much larger effects. And that seems to be because, actually, when you get talking to somebody who's a bit different from you, it's very easy in a sort of us and them world to say, this person's different from me, they're very, very far away, and they must have three heads and be a bit weird. Um, whereas once you get to know people who are a bit different to you, then you actually find actually there's a lot more you have in common. And so the entire environment to which you're trying to get over this bridge to is a lot safer. It seems a lot more like home. And can you imagine some examples that perhaps anyone here could take back to their work, whether or even their homes or their local areas, where they could actually do some of that buddying? Are there sort of policies, Susanna? You, I don't. You work for the National System Service as well, did you? No, you didn't. Okay. But is there a practical way we can take that home and maybe find a way to to implement it? Because yes. it, it takes something's hard. It's yeah. out of your comfort zone. Yeah. So actually, our colleagues at BIT are now doing some work on loneliness, uh, which uh, one of our colleagues, Claire, uh, was recently National Loneliness Day or Not Being Lonely Day. Or, yeah. Um, <laughs> Every day is National Loneliness Day. Oh, Michael. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, as a result, she was sort of, uh, she was, they were going to Bristol, they got stuck on a train for two and a half hours, and they decided this was a really good opportunity to build some social yeah. bridges and talk to other people. And I have to say that just, like, watching this play out on Twitter actually gave me, like, secondary trauma, because I find talking to strangers really stressful. <laughs> so I was like, I had to go and sit somewhere quiet for a while to cope with this. But there is, so one of the possible applications that we thought about was sort of uh, when people are joining a new organisation is a pretty obvious place, like, you know, uh, if someone's about to come into the team, that sort of thing, or if they're changing teams, then then sort of linking people up to buddies then is really potentially very helpful. Uh, in terms of practicing this in everyday life, one of the one of the things Behavioural Insights tells us is if you want to do something that you might otherwise find hard or stressful or unappealing, just like pick the one thing you're going to do and do that. And so there is a there is a research protocol called the Experimental Generation of Interpersonal Closeness, which is basically a series of about 50 questions with sort of escalating levels of sort of directness and, and sort of interpersonal intimacy. And they don't get like really, really intimate, obviously, but uh, but basically it's used in psychology. If you, if you want to study the way people behave when they're in close 
when they're with someone that they're close friends with, but you, you want to randomize so you can't just get someone to bring their best friend in, you get them to do this protocol. Uh, but that actually gives you a lot of really good questions that are just questions you probably don't ask people on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, like, you know, I mean, there are some really, there are some slightly, like the earlier ones are quite superficial, like what person alive or dead would you want to have to dinner and why? But then the later ones are like, what's something that's bothering you? Can you talk me through why it's bothering you? So things that you could, act, a conversation you could have with someone that you don't know that well or you've just met. And so I guess if, if I was to take this back into my life and try to overcome my horror of talking to strangers, then probably what I would do is I'd look at something like that and pick three questions that I thought that I could deal with asking someone who was a stranger or someone I didn't know very well but who was from a different background. And then I would have those in my head and I would kind of deploy them at moments. But yeah, there is, there's something about just having a plan that's very simple for how you're going to do things like that because it'll get called to your mind at the moment when you, when you need it sure. more than if you're just like, I should make friends with strangers, which you know, some people will be fine with it and other people will be like, no, that's horrifying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and, and for when when it is horrifying, when you want to um, when you want to actually have something that perhaps isn't about uh, Michael a, a direct human contact, but you want to create a role model, perhaps of somebody to show uh, a better behaviour. You know, a classic example is we have a real problem with uh, white working class boys who don't have enough role models that might be about getting into university. How do we create those role models other, other than paying for them? or just waiting for somebody marvellous to come along on TV. How do you create those role models? Oh, yes. You're both Michael. looking at me, so you're both obviously interested. Michael, do you want to do that first? I'm or? going to interject. Michael, why don't you tell them about the Michael Sanders effect? Mm. Thank what you, Susanna. is the Michael Sanders effect? I was hoping you were going to pick up on the white working class girls thing rather than that one. No. no? Okay. Fine. But yes, we should care about white working class girls as well. Ah, that effect. I'm going to ask you, Michael, how do you get the role models? Sure. How do you create them? Uh, so, uh, this is super embarrassing, thanks. So, uh, so a long time ago, uh, in a county far, far away, we did a piece of work in Somerset to try and get uh, young people from Somerset to apply to university. So they are disproportionately less likely to apply to university than people in a lot of other counties, even when you condition on their grade and the fact that they're, whether their parents went to, uh, went to university and that kind of thing. And conditional on applying, they applied to substantially less good universities. If you want to have an argument of what is a good university and what isn't a good university, fine, but like the ones you're thinking of. Um, that... They're, so they apply to less good universities than people from other places. Uh, so why is that? And it, one of the arguments is it's because there is a relatively low level of university attendance among their parents, um, and there's no university in the county, so there's no sort of university that they know of. So we thought we should use a role model. We should find an individual who can go and inspire them uh, to want to go to university. And it turns out it's quite difficult at short notice with no budget uh, to find somebody who is from Somerset and went to a good university and who might be inspiring to white working class boys. Mm. So, turns out, I am in that <laughs> box, and I don't always wear a bow tie. Um, so I went and drove around, and I should say before I get interrupted that I didn't drive around because I can't drive. Uh, our colleague Ashling McConnor drove me around, and we went to schools, and I gave a series of talks um, to, to young people. Um, and I think we had a 
about a 15% increase in the rate at which young people purported to want to go uh, to university, and they thought the people who went to university had more interesting lives, and that kind of thing was a consequence. So uh, the behavioral health has seen that about 700 trials. They have about 180 employees. I believe I am the Venn diagram of those two, insofar as I am the only experimentally validated intervention <laughs> in in human form created by the behavioral insights team. Um, but yeah, so so. You guys should feel pretty honored. You're hearing from an empirically validated inspirational speaker right now. Yeah. <laughs> if, any, if any of you are under the age of 18, white and working class, and probably male in Somerset right now, then things are looking up for you. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so, you know, so you can, so, all, even, so underrepresented groups of people in higher education, in the professions, are, are not, they're very rarely underrepresented to the point of zero. So you need to try and, you need to do a bit of work to try and find them or just look around the room and see if there's one there. Mm. Um, one of the big problems we have with that kind of role model talk is it's really hard to scale, right? Mm. So I'd have to have quit my job and so would Ashling. Mm. Um, and we'd have to spend the entire of our lives driving around schools to do this. So a follow-up study which we did uh, got uh, two students from Bristol from similar backgrounds to write letters out to the 11,000 young people who got good GCSE grades, but which went to schools which suggested they were less likely to apply to good universities, selective universities, than they probably should have done given the grades they were getting. Um, so in that case, you know, we had two, uh, so Ben Cole uh, and, and Rachel, I forgot Rachel's surname, um, they, wrote, they wrote these letters, we put them on DFE header paper, but they were from them, and they hand signed five and a half thousand of them each. Uh, and then we sent them out at random, so a quarter of the students got ni neither letter, a quarter of students got a letter from Ben, a quarter of students got a letter from Rachel, and a quarter of students got both. And when you got when students got both letters, they were 3.2 percentage points more likely to go to, to be accepted by and to accept a place from a selective university than if they hadn't gotten either letter. And that doesn't sound like a huge increase compared to some of the effects we might want to talk about. But that's an extra 300 kids from these backgrounds with these grades every year who are getting into getting into and get accepting places from selective universities. So role models are not that hard to find, but they can be, for a young person who's sitting there at home when they're 16, when they're 15, when they're however old, to be honest, and thinking, actually, this route, this this role, this, this path through life is not for people like me. Just, some, just a, a timely letter, even, or a video or a talk from somebody who is like them, and you don't need to have very many of those people, can have a really disproportionate impact. And the role models are not as hard to find as we think they are. Yeah. Yeah. Susanna, do you have any examples of role models that you've, um, that maybe you've inspired yourself, but or you've put it, helped to make get out there in the field that could help? And please make it not a white male uh, example <laughs> if possible. I was actually thinking about the closest that I've ever come to being the topic of an intervention, which is when I wrote a very evocative, not entirely real testimonial from a steel worker in the north who couldn't get another job, um, which was a retraining trial, um, which which was effective. <laughs> it's not quite the same, though. Um. <laughs> Close to empirically valid. Good pilot study. Yeah. Uh, in terms of in terms of sort of, so actually we're doing some work. So my my actual research background is in political science. And we're doing some work at the moment looking at female political role models because there are a lot of high-profile female politicians out there. The research suggests that this can, this can kind of be a double-edged sword for young women uh, because on the one hand, you see someone that you might identify with 
succeeding and that's great and you might get inspired to engage more with politics but on the other hand you you see someone that you identify with often go through a really rough time like you know uh so I was pardon exactly uh or when I was in Australia uh I was working for Julia Gillard who I think outside Australia is mostly famous for a absolutely blistering speech she gave on the floor of parliament about all of the misogyny that she'd been through as prime minister. Uh, and so, you know, there is a, and you know, I once saw her talk and she was talking about her book and she said some young woman had come up to her and said, my gosh, thank you for doing that. I would never, go, I'd never go through that. It wasn't, it doesn't seem like it was worth it. And she was like, no, that's the opposite from the message that you should be getting from this. Uh, and so she wrote the book partly to sort of try and put it out there that actually this was difficult, but it was worth it. But I think in, in the current environment, that question of, especially for young women, but also for other groups, uh, how, how do we make sure that like political leaders who sort of come from their background act as inspiring role models for them is really important. So we're doing, we're doing some research on that at the moment, actually working with Julia, which is really exciting because the Global Institute for Women's Leadership sits near us and she's the executive chair of it. So that's, that's what I'm thinking about with role yeah. models at the moment is how do you use them to promote political engagement from people who aren't middle-class white men? Mm -hmm. Good answer. Um, <laughs> so you talked about politicians and prime ministers. I mean, what, one of the critiques of what we're trying to do by using behavioral nudges or other ways to, to encourage people to be better at their social networks is it's about the microclimates of things, it's about a small scale. How do you, Suzanne, and I'm gonna ask you as well this, Michael, is, how do you deal with that criticism that actually, you know what the fundamental problem is? It's about deep inequalities in our society mm -hmm. and poverty. Yeah. And if you don't address that, this is all window dressing at a, yeah. at a micro level. How, how do you respond to that? Absolutely, I think that's a really fair point. You're not maybe asking the best people here because we're obviously both lapsed nudges who don't work at BIT anymore, so you might get a different answer uh, from people who are still working there. So is there anyone here from Behavioural Insights team? Just to check, really? We're collaborator, but that's... I'm not, I'm okay. not gonna say right, anything so overly say critical, I'm just saying you're getting a slightly atypical answer. Sure. Um, so I think that's a really good point, and I think actually my first encounter with behavioural insights before I came to BIT was George Lowenstein, who's one of the sort of big behavioural insights uh, people in the US, and I'm a huge fan of his work, but he was saying, as far as he's concerned, the biggest risk of nudge is that it's an, it, it looks like an easy answer to a hard problem, and as people who think about nudges and think about small changes that can make big differences, I think we always have to be on guard for those times when actually this is a big change, like a, it needs a big change. And so to the extent that, you know, uh, some, some of the challenges we're seeing in the world at the moment are the result of big policy settings. They're a result of tax transfer, foreign policy, media regulation. Like, you know, there are big levers that need to get pulled if we want to start addressing them. Uh, and, but I guess what, to the extent that we can't pull those levers, we have to think about what we can do in that environment, but also what we can do to help empower people who are being affected by those to organize and to advocate as well and to start creating that pressure that causes, that creates the momentum for the big levers. So I guess what's the, the sort of journey I've been on since, so I, I left BIT six months ago, and the journey I've been on since then is more around how do you create the conditions where people talk about this stuff, think about this stuff, and act in a reflective and deliberate way around things like 
their social networks, how they behave within them, what behaviour they accept, how they treat other people, and actually, you know, in, in other areas as well, so political engagement, how, how they take in political information, how our students at King's interact with each other and, and the way that they make plans around their own study and sort of that. So uh, our framework at King's includes empower and enable is one of our elements, which is about how do you get people to do this stuff for themselves and how do you help them do that? And I think that's a really, that's kind of, that's the part of this picture that we can do while we wait for the momentum for the bigger levers to get pulled and mm -hmm. to also hopefully make that happen sooner. Mm -hmm. Michael, big big levers versus small. Is this all too small scale? What's your view? Uh, so I go back and forth on this. So I remember, so I, as Susanna said, neither of us work at BIT anymore and I'm not a civil servant anymore. So I'm allowed to say things like, uh, so the, Pre the last election, I think the government was talking about grammar schools coming back in a big way, and you know, so I'm very proud of the work that Bits done in education. I'm proud of the like we built two apps that are great, profitable, and networking. I'm proud of the stuff we've done in collaboration with King. They've done in collaboration with Kings and collaboration with the DfE to get more people from lower income families into university. I'm proud of all of that, um, and that sort of is the last five or six years of my life. If you bring back grammar schools in a major way, then it's like that. And everything we've done doesn't really matter because it's just going to make everything worse. And it's going to make it worse by way more than I could make it better. And it's going to make it worse a lot quicker. So when I'm feeling like that, I feel like actually the whole thing is kind of pointless. However, I have a book to sell, so let's be more optimistic. <laughs> um, but, but more seriously than that, like the the most days aren't revolutionary. Most government bills are not revolutionary most change is not revolutionary it's not sudden and so we don't i, I don't have an uh, i'm sure there is somebody who does um i, I don't have a proper understanding of how we, how we achieve major changes without revolution without it being a series of small incremental changes so justine greening was the first education secretary who hadn't gone i think this is true hadn't gone to a grammar school or a private school and the reason why that happened is because we've had a we had a quite gradual shift towards comprehensives, and the Labour government said they weren't going to make any more of them. If we those three hundred kids I talked about who we got into more selective universities, if ten percent of them go and work in government, or if one of those three hundred people becomes an MP, then that's a whole that's a very small step in the direction of there being more people in the system making decisions about that system who understand what it's like to come from a lower income family or to have come from a particular community or really any kind of background or life experience at all. And I tend to think, and perhaps erroneously, that a government that better represents people, and this isn't just in elected officials, but also in civil servants, better represents people, will tend to make policies that are better. Mm -hmm. um, and so we can incrementally ratchet that stuff. We can also do things, we can have big bang things, we can pass legislation, we can increase uh, the franchise university-wise. We can do all those things, we should do all of those things. But, you know, from year to year, like, we can we can edge things up gradually as well, and certainly, mm -hmm. it's better to edge things up naturally than to leave them as they are, uh, or to let things just get worse through neglect and apathy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, gonna, I'm sure the audience will have some questions about that, but I, I want to ask you both a couple of things about the book itself. I mean, w one is um, how you felt, Susanna, at the end of it about it's a fundamentally optimistic book. Uh, despite what you've just said, I mean, it is lots of very useful, uh, practical steps that we can all do, not just in, in power, you could do it 
anyone who's a boss in the company yeah. uh, or charity or any level you could you could imagine putting this into into use uh, but there's all this stuff going on in the wider world there's fake mm-hmm. news there's populism there's polarization do you still feel as optimistic after writing the book and the, the current age we live in or is, uh, is it undented your optimism uh, <laughs> I was saying earlier gosh it would have been nice if we'd got because we so we finished the book uh, well so we finished writing it in September and it went to print in December January and you know because the book is sort of reasonably topical, gosh, it would have been nice if it had been completely overtaken by events and, you know, Brexit had been cancelled and, you know, every, you know it, it was sort of no longer relevant because everything was fine. Uh, but unfortunately, we, we, we seem to be still heading in the same direction that we were and in a, in a more uncertain way than we were then because, you know, I think... When we finished the book, we were, there was a trajectory we were on, and maybe it wasn't a great one, but at least if you can see a trajectory, you can try and figure out what you can do about it so you can sort of start to influence or, you know, that sort of thing. But but I think the trajectory has got less clear as well as less positive. Uh, but I, I, I'm i a big fan in just f- of just focusing on the things you can control and you can change and trying to be better and to sort of, you know, and to, to work to make the, the world sort of within your orbit, however big that orbit is, or your ambit, however big that ambit is, better. Uh, and so I think in that context, I remain, I remain optimistic. I mean, we finished, so there's a story towards, the, in the, actually in the last chapter of the book, uh, which was one of the ones that really stuck with me and part of the reason why I think we wrote the last chapter the way we did. The last chapter is called Belonging and Trusting, so it's about what happens when things go right in social networks. Um, so obviously I'm from Australia, which means I understand how it feels to be from a country that's not currently covering itself in glory in the international arena, uh, you know, experimenting with sending asylum seekers to the developing country on our northern border and just leaving them there indefinitely, which is not something that makes me feel great as an Australian. But there's a story towards the end about a a family of asylum seekers, a Tamil asylum seekers who moved into a town in northern Queensland, which is not the most, uh, you know, I'm from Queensland, but it's not not the most um, cosmopolitan part of Australia. Uh, which is not the most cosmopolitan country. Uh, but this group, this family of asylum seekers moved in and then, you know, their visas ended and they could have got dragged away in the night and the whole community kind of rallied around them and was like, no, they belong, you know, they are from our community, we want them to come back. And they actually flew to Melbourne, which is a long way to go and stand outside the court singing. Um, there's a song called We Are Australian, which is, you know, like, uh, and, and, you know, and they just really wanted this this family to come back. And so, you know, I think... That's kind of, you know, as we said at the beginning, that's, that's more what happens on a day-to-day basis is people being nice to each other and caring about each other and accepting people in their community and wanting to fight for their communities. And I think if, if we remember that and if, if that is what we see as human nature and as our social environment, then I think that, that is sort of empowering and motivating about, um, you know, the way we can do better. And, you know, I mean, maybe when I think about things like Brexit, I think all of the people who voted for Brexit or people who read The Sun or whatever it is are all terrible. But on a day-to-day basis, they're not either, right? Like they're, you know, they're in their social networks. They look after their friends and family. They care about things that are going on. And I think, you know, when you remember that on a day-to-day basis, it, it's easier to be a bit more optimistic about the world. Michael, are you feeling optimistic same or I mean social networks can be such terrible nasty places whether online or analog uh, so I think optimistic is possibly the wrong 
term to describe my mood. But I think the Susanna said said motivated. I think that that is a part of it. So we, if you read really anything, uh, then you know Cambridge Analytica. Let's take as an example, have allegedly used a lot of the same kind of techniques and the same kind of thinking that we're thinking about to try and manipulate the results of elections for the purposes of which are, we're going to call them nefarious. Whether you believe in good guys or bad guys in the story, we're going to say meddling in elections is not okay unless it's us doing it, um, which we don't do. Um, so that that's a reason to feel negative and less happy about the world, I guess. Yeah. But. The, what we see for most of this book, and what we see most around most of this, firstly, our instincts are generally very positive. There's a lot of cause for optimism there, and there are things that we can do on the side of the good guys, right? This is we shouldn't we should say that okay, it looks like you know the good guys are getting their asses handed them handed to them, but that isn't how it has to be. We need to get in the game as people who want to make the world a better, more positive place, and say actually this social stuff can be positive, and we're going to make it positive, and we're going to start that today, and we have to do that because otherwise the bad guys just win. Mm -hmm. But that's, and that's I think motivated rather than optimistic. I believe we can win, so in that sense, I'm optimistic. Brilliant, motivated rather than optimistic. So we're going to open up to, to the floor. We have a um, little bit of time to ask some questions. Ideally, we need to got some microphones. So if you could wait for the microphones to to come. There's a lady right at the start here, and the lady in purple just there. Uh, this lady right at the front first. Yep. Hello. Um, and can you make it as a question, please, as well, rather than a statement? Okay, so I will try and frame it as a question. It's, a, it's, it's, it's also a comment, um, which is that I think, do you agree that... <laughs> <laughs> so a loaded question, yeah. yeah. That um, you can actually achieve both speaking to people who might have different opinions from you and making positive change to make yourself feel better by joining things like transition, you know, I, I, which people, people don't know, the transition movement is a, a, a local groups all over the country trying to basically face the apocalypse with a smile, you know, by I don't know, gardening or greening up or you know, doing all these other things. Because it, it, you have a common purpose, but, but inevitably you're also working with people who in other contexts are very different from you. And, and the common purpose enables you to overcome the differences often. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I just wondered whether those kind of network um, which have, for me seem incredibly positive, have have worked in other contexts that you're familiar with too. Good question. Uh, lady behind, and then this gentleman here. Uh, my question is a little bit more uh, specific on digital, digital social uh, network. Um, so recently, we've learned that uh, in the UK, only 11.6 million or something are digitally excluded. So how do you get people who are totally digitally excluded? to be interested, and, and worse than that, so I can't remember the percentage of them saying that they are not even interested to mm -hmm. get online. Mm -hmm. Do you have any strategy to get those people? You've mentioned earlier how to get people to go in some community to see some role model and see, oh, you know, again, it, something about motivation. How yeah. do you get people, because yeah. I'm sure that there might be something missing, uh, why they are not interested? So, do you have any tips for that? Yeah, yeah. and that could be an age-related issue or rural, and that's an online expert. This question uh, here. Tried to Alexander. I was interested, Michael Sanders. You work for the Children's Centre for Social Care, and we know that parental influence is the biggest and most important influence in children's attainment in school mm -hmm. and learning and develop life chances. Yet, the government has allowed um, 
Sure Start centres and support for parents to disintegrate. Do you have any lessons from your research to how we can nudge the government and others to change their minds on this? Wow, okay, so that's actually sort of political influence, but maybe using some nudging sort of techniques on those in power to, to do things like Sure Start. Okay, well, that's, that's uh, three tough ones. To, to, so how about the first one about, so, so the transition group being a membership, Susanna, of a sort of local group. Yeah. Do you find that could be a useful way in? Yeah, absolutely. I guess the question is, if, if it works for you and, or whoever it is, I guess different kinds of networks will work for different people. But there is definitely something about shared, shared interests, shared values and shared goals that helps. And especially shared goal achievement seems to be really important. So uh, if, if we're talking about how you would socially engineer social groups, uh, one thing that seems to really help is, sh is shared goal achievement. So working on and accomplishing something together uh, seems to be really important. But, uh, you know, for other people, it might be, you know, it might be just like, you know, family bonds are really strong or, you know, other things like that. It might be, you know, they going to a class. So, you know, if you do like dance classes or singing classes or, you know, whatever it might be, that might be the sort of mechanism for that. It might be political, obviously, political uh, mobilization, like joining a political party. It could be a lot of different things. But yeah, shared goals and shared successes seem to be quite important to the sort of formation and sort of sustaining of social groups. Michael, you've done you've done lots of experimental digital experiments, and you What do we do about all this? Like my mother, bless her. We've tried to get her online. It's you know she's got access to computers. I, I mean that's facetious, but there are lots of people who are, as you said, not even interested in getting online. Like my mother, she, you, you, and if that is part of what we're trying to do, both online and in the real world, whatever the real world is, is there any way we can encourage that? So I guess there's, the, there's a question of why you want people to get online. So I don't think that I would say people need to get online to do social stuff. Um, you know, so that all social networks existed perfectly fine for hundreds of years before Mark Zuckerberg was a glint in somebody's eye. So I think that this isn't, this shouldn't be a reason to get people to go online. Um, I think. There is a lot that can be done in terms of uh, influencing the people around other people. Mm. So uh, a few years ago, uh, Nesta actually, back, this is way back in the day, uh, funded an organization called Ties, um, the purpose of which was to get sort of, uh, let's say that your, uh, your mother, not mm -hmm. you, your, yeah, your, 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 your mother's not uh, digitally connected at all, um, <laughs> but there are people around her who are, and so they would go and visit her and go and check up on it, it's particularly focused on uh, age and isolation issues. Um, and those people could, you know, they, that uses digital that already exists around a person to help them and support them to make them in many cases less lonely. Um, but it also, because of the fact that it, it creates a sort of more active social network and the place that social network for that person is, is online uh, or is digital, then it gives people a reason to do it. So mm. I'm not compelled to go onto Facebook because of the advertising or really any of that stuff. Right? It's because I want to know what other people are doing. It's a mechanism for communicating with friends I have who are on the far side of the road. If you're a little bit older and you have mobility, sorry, but I said, I was supposed to say world there. Um, but if you have, it, being able to communicate with people is a, it's a really fundamental instinct. And if we can show people the substantive benefits they can get by doing that, by bringing their social network to them and online, I think that would probably be how I would approach it. Mm. Um, but like just digital for digital sake is probably not going to be terribly effective on that audience. Um, 
some more questions. Michael, that the, how do we nudge the, those in power who are who can do things like short start? You, you both, by the way, lead what work centres, which are extraordinarily influential, getting evidence to to influence the front line, whether it's social workers or people running higher education. Yeah. But how do we get people in power? What's your what's your tips there? Mobilise and lobby. So. Mobilise and lobby. All right. <laughs> Yeah. What she said, but evidence. But uh, also with voting. <laughs> Mobilised so, lobby and evidence. Yeah. So we, so we need to have, so having timely, good quality evidence that a thing works and is not just effective, yeah. but cost effective, which is where Sure Start slightly falls down, yeah. is where, the way, I think. Okay, great. Um, there's a question, this gentleman in the front here, uh, and that gentleman in the front, and right to the front row. Sorry, I will get to the back as well. We've only got a few minutes, so yes. Yeah, fascinating discussion. Um, I'd like just to touch on sort of ends and means here. I'm haunted by these hapless young people in Somerset dragged out of quiet life in Taunton <laughs> to be sent off to universities by your nice letters. Because you do need to define what good looks like. And if you are a graduate, you assume that it is good that people should go to university and you want to empower them. If you take that to its N3, you reach the sort of Chinese good citizenship model where you're marking people for, do I say, good decisions ascribed from outside. How do you, do I say, determine the right nudge? Because you're in the means business. You're not necessarily in the ends business. Yeah, yeah. good question. So what are the right outcomes we should be looking at here? This gentleman. Thank you. Uh, this is a very interesting talk, by the way, and thank you, Mr. Mike. Um, my question is uh, really simple, which is this. Um, social media is all private enterprise. Is there room for state-financed, non-advertising-based social media to enable communities to interact without the pernicious uh, content that is provided by the commercial sector? Yeah. Well, is there anyone here from Nest who's running the Decent program? Because they could answer that, the European one. No? Okay. Uh, one, one final. Yeah, this lady right in front. Hi, thanks for the talk. Um, so you mentioned briefly your colleagues that are tackling sort of the loneliness and that's sort of coming up more and more in the media. Um, do you think we should be holding businesses and organisations accountable for helping tackle that maybe through the power of social networks in a similar way that we're starting to get them to be a bit more accountable around climate change, for example? So that companies would almost... or Charities and others would actually, you'd actually measure their progress and how, how much yeah, they're doing and, for and their employees. Yeah, and start those social networks as an in initiative within the business. Mm. Susanna, should we go to the first one, which is about the outcomes? How you know we can't mm. just take for granted what we're trying to achieve here. Uh, it might not just be getting yeah. into university. How do we get that? So level? I guess there is a. I will hand over to Michael to respond to this one as well. But I guess there is. Um, there's a pragmatic question here, which is if you're doing something at scale, you've got to do what on average is going to be best for most people, just on a practical level. And in the education space, unfortunately, I think this is a real problem and I have worked on it in the past. Unfortunately, your outcomes are just much better if you go to university on average. And so without sort of looking under the bonnet of individual people who were, in, were uh, you know, who were involved in these trials, that's that's kind of, you know, where you can feel most secure that you're, you're doing a good thing. Uh, I think the second thing is maybe everybody shouldn't go to university, but they should believe it's an option for them. 
So they should think that this is a place where they are wanted and welcome and can succeed if that's what they want to do. Uh, and I don't, and you know, likewise, you know, obviously people who come from more traditional university going backgrounds should be thinking about apprenticeships and should be thinking about other options. Uh, I guess the thing is, if you, if you believe in social mobility, then you, you, kind of, you kind of have to have a view that some of these paths are going to result in better options and better outcomes. And if you just go, well, the, you know, the ends are a bit complicated, now we're doing the right thing for the right person, then that's a really good way to end up not doing anything. Uh, so I don't know if you want to. So I couldn't agree more with everything that Susanna said. I think there, uh, just to sort of slightly add on to that, the, I'm fine to have this argument or discussion, I don't think we're having an argument, um, you don't seem like the sort, uh, the, that you know, not everybody should go to university and absolutely that's fine, I believe that. But I, mean, I think we have, what, 48,000 young people a year graduate in this country from private schools. Almost all of those people will go to university compared to a like, much, 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 much smaller fraction of young people with lower incomes. And, you know, that's absolutely fine if, there are, if those people are choosing that they really love rural life in Taunton. I've been to Taunton. I'm, I'm not convinced that's, that they're making the best possible choice armed with all of the information, but to be, <laughs> to be, there are some great helicopters. Anyway, the, the, there are, going to university for good or for ill in this country is the route into power and authority. It is the way you get and to make security. decisions. And security. But, like, but if you, you can vote, absolutely you can vote. You can vote for whomever you want. But if you want to actually be able to make a difference in a really substantive way, you pretty much need to have gone to university. That's a, that's a big structural problem that we should be trying to address. But until like people who come from lower income families, people who come from rural areas, people who come from ethnic minority, people who come from non-traditional university going background, have exactly the same seat at the table where those decisions are being made, then yes, I'm gonna try and push many more of them into university so that they get there, so that they can have, so that they can have their voice heard rather than I'm making an assumption about you, but you and the likes of you and I having an argument at what's best for them and what's not best mm -hmm. for them. There are a couple of other differences between nudging people with letters and the way the Chinese run things, but I'm not <laughs> going to go into those. <laughs> it's, probably, it's probably possible to stop somewhere between the two and sort of like a managed sort of roll to a halt for the, you know, sort of. Mm, yeah. Probably. Uh, and Susanna, the. the the moving towards something more publicly owned rather than commercial media providers, and then also your views on the loneliness. You know, should we get mm. organisations yeah. uh, actually to almost audit it and actually be held to account? Yeah, so Michael will tell you that I'm a big fan of government action, definitely, of the two of us. I'm, I'm the one who's more pro-government intervening in things. Um, I, so I guess when I think about government running a social network, I think we talk about this in the book, but I think about when um, Mark Zuckerberg was interviewed by the, or was you know, interrogated by the Senate and was asked in the US, was asked, um, if, you, if you don't charge, how do you make money? Uh, and Mark Zuckerberg, is like, there's a video of him, just like his incredulous face as he says, Senator, we run ads. And I just think, like an like an organization that that is at that stage. And I mean, you know, that's the U.S. government and it's the Senate, and you know, it's not typical. But an organization that is at that stage is probably not ready to try and compete in a market like that. Um, which, but seriously though, I think government does well on things that change at the speed that government changes. Uh, so, like, the ship of state moves quite slowly. 
Uh, and so, for example, I might argue in favour of renationalising the rail network because the rail network moves at roughly the same speed as government does, slowly, um, you know, and, and sort of disruptive change is kind of constrained by the fact that there are tracks and the trains have to run on the tracks and so you can kind of see it coming. Um, I, I think if government tried to get into the social network business, they would get left, they'd get left behind before they'd even, like, got their briefing onto the minister's desk, let alone... Yeah. But there's a there's a public sector well, shouldn't run anything. But there's a public sector broadcasting ethos that might be in social yeah. in the social domain. Yeah. yeah. Less technically, for example. Yeah, yeah, not publicly funded. But but the the point about how you would go around um, making sure that people are running it are perhaps not purely about a profit making motive. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> That's, hold on, that's a big, big, big question to ask. We're actually running out of time. So I'm sorry, I didn't intentionally misinterpret your question. I just didn't understand it. I wasn't trying to dodge it. There, I'm <laughs> there, there are actually quite a few other questions here, but I'm afraid we're running out of time. Would you be happy to answer some of the questions over a drink later on? Um, but I just want to wrap up and not summarize what they've said, but just... Do read the book if you haven't already in terms of not just sort of practical and positive. Uh, and the reason why I'm here, by the way, the, 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 the evidence behind the assertions they're making are so rigorous. I, I think you even show your learning very lightly or, or certainly the research very lightly. There's not just any old evidence. I'm sure we've all read those books you get in airports where they cherry pick things here and there that are pretty, pretty dodgy pieces of evidence. This is about stuff that's actually been replicated. So it's a really strongly argued empirical book, as well as being positive and practical. And I think you've seen tonight as well, they've managed to be positive about their relationship writing it together. I've seen a bit of body language, but would you, would you write a book again together? Ask us in five years. Five years, I'll come back. Um, but I, I'm going to finish on, on the final paragraph of the book, which I think is a really nice way to, to end, because it's worth digging into all the examples that, that, that there, but this is the message that I want to, to leave you with as you go away for your wine nibbles and possible book signing as well, if you're, if you're on. <clears throat> but it says, although there are indeed terrible things happening in the modern world that will vex us all for years to come, the overwhelming majority of acts by the overwhelming majority of people are positive. We mustn't lose sight of that, nor stop working towards a better, fairer, more social world. Thank you for that. So if you're just straight outside, there's uh, wine nibbles and book signing, and you can buy the book out there. Thank you.